At this time, uh, we will turn to our first lecture for this conference. We welcome the Reverend Christian McShaffrey to lecture on the authority of Scripture with the text 2 Chronicles 34, verses 1 through 33. The Reverend McShaffrey is the pastor of this church, Five Solas Church in Reedsburg, Wisconsin. He's a graduate of Worsham College of Mortuary Science and also of my alma mater, Mid-America Reformed Seminary. He serves as the stated clerk of the Presbytery of Minnesota and Wisconsin and runs the text and translation webzine. Christian, teach us from God's Word. Let's turn in our Bibles to our scripture reading, 2 Chronicles chapter 34. As you find your way to 2 Chronicles chapter 34, I'd ask you to stand out of reverence for the word of God publicly read in his church. This, brothers and sisters, is the very word of God. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence and the images that were on high above them, he cut down and the groves and the carved images and the molten images he break in pieces and made dust of them and strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. And he burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even unto Naphtali with their mattocks round about. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves, and had beaten the graven images into powder, and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Now, in the eighteenth year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And when they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites that kept the doors had gathered of the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim and of all the remnant of Israel and of all Judah and Benjamin, and they returned to Jerusalem. And they put it in the hand of the workmen that had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen that wrought in the house of the Lord to repair and amend the house. Even to the artificers and builders gave they it to buy hewn stone and timber for couplings and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. 
And the men did the work faithfully. And the overseers of them were Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari, and Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites to set it forward, and other of the Levites, all that could skill of instruments of music. Also they were over the bearers of burdens, and were overseers of all that wrought the work in any manner of service, and of the Levites there were scribes and officers and porters. And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan carried the book to the king and brought the king word back again, saying, All that was committed to thy servants, they do it. And they have gathered together the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and to the hand of the workmen. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Abdon the son of Micah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah a servant of the king's, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. And Hilkiah and they that the king had appointed went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvath, the son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college. And they spake to her to that effect. And she answered them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell ye the man that sent you to me, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be poured out upon this place, and shall not be quenched. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so shall ye say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which thou hast heard. Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. 
Neither shall thine eye see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the king word again. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small, and he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertained to the children of Israel and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord their God. And all his days they departed not from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. So far the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Reformation. It was obviously needed in the 7th century B.C. It was needed again in the 16th century A.D., and it continues to be the great need of our day, Reformation. But what exactly is it? It's what we just read. It's when the authority of God's word is rediscovered and allowed to change everything for the better. We'll begin tonight with a summary of the Great Reformation of the 7th century B.C., and also consider a couple historic parallels. First, then, the Reformation of the 7th century B.C. That's when Josiah lived, and as we read, they were some of the darkest days in all church history. Hence, we consider first the need for Reformation. Simply put, friends, things need to be reformed when they become deformed due to sin. The temple was in disrepair. The priests were worthless The land was filled with idols, and the people were given over to all manner of wickedness. And when I say the people, you need to remember that these are the people of God. This is the church under age. So how is it that we then read of high places and carved images, altars to Baal, idols? The parallel account in the book of Kings adds even more abominations to the list. Not only were their vessels made for Baal, but they were kept in the house of the Lord. Not only were the people worshiping false gods like Baal, but also the creation itself, the sun, the moon, the stars, all the host of heaven. Not only was their worship and church corrupt, but their entire society was sunk in sin. The Bible tells us, for example, there were houses of the Sodomites built right by the house of the Lord. Child sacrifice was practiced. 
Witches roamed the land, and the people, their priests, and their governors loved to have it so. This is what happens when people deny the authority of God's holy word. Yes, they had God's word, but as we shall see, it was hidden away, tucked away, gathering dust, unread, unheeded. And whenever that happens, this is what we see. God's people fall away, the church becomes corrupt, God's wrath is kindled, and his curses fall upon all the land. That's the need for reformation. Again, things need to be reformed when they become deformed due to sin. And God is faithful. God is faithful. And that's one of the positive encouragements I want you to take home this evening. God is faithful. Even in the darkest chapters of church or world history, God is faithful to pierce the darkness with the light of his word, bringing people back to himself and bringing things back into proper order, both in the church and in the state. God is faithful to send the light of truth. But one thing you need to realize is this. Sometimes that light seems to shine somewhat dimly, at least at the first. I mean, who would have thought this eight-year-old boy would someday change the world? I mean, even if he wanted to, where would he begin? Things were that much of a mess. Verse 3 tells us, he began, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. And this is where all true biblical reformation begins. So we now consider the heart of reformation. True reformation, it does involve outward change, as we read Idols need to be destroyed. Reprobates need to be banished. God's commandments need to be obeyed. But notice how it all begins simply enough with seeking God. Seeking God from a heart, according to verse 27, that is tender and humble. This, if you will, is the spiritual side of Reformation. Really the first step of Reformation. It's the heart of it, you see. Because without this, no great work for God can be done. And I emphasize this for a couple reasons. First, for the sake of those who fancy themselves to be reformers and who, in their youthful zeal, set out to change things, but without first seeking the Lord. Sometimes they succeed, but what we see in Josiah is much better. Securing God's blessing by seeking him with a tender heart. But I also emphasize it for the sake of those who tend to be suspicious of reformers. When someone begins asking the wrong questions or challenges the status quo or takes a hard-line stance on some doctrine or practice, it's common for that person to be seen as suspect, sometimes even prejudged, as sinful, as if the only possible motive behind someone wanting to see change must be arrogance or pride or lust for vain glory. What do you think these priests thought of Josiah? We can imagine, right? Who is he? Who does he think he is? Who is this upstart? I'll tell you. He was a man whose heart was tender and humble before God. He was a man who sought the Lord, 
and a man who found God and his blessing because of what happened in verse 14. Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. He then delivered the book to Shaphan. Shaphan carried the book to the king. And then ultimately this, verses 29 and 30 are key. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord. And all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small, and he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. Here, in this rediscovery and public reading of Scripture, we see the standard of Reformation. The standard. It is, of course, the Word of God, but as we consider the text at hand, we might wonder, where had it been all these years? In one sense, we can say it was right where it should have been, in the house of the Lord. But we also get the impression, do we not, that it had been tucked away, hidden away into some dark corner. Why? By whom? Natural questions. And we don't know for sure, but there are a couple distinct possibilities. Who knows? Maybe it was unintentional. I grew up in a religious house. We had a Bible, but it was kept way up on the top shelf, gathering dust. No one ever read it. But, on the other hand, there may have been some intent here. I mean, given the condition of the church in those days, I would not personally be surprised to find out that the priests took the word of God and hid it. Hid it from the people so they could just continue doing church however they want and living their godless lives. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Church leaders keeping the truth of God's word from the people so they can just do church without the Lord, and also without ever running the risk of somebody saying, uh, but pastor, what about this verse? That's happened more than once in church history, but here's what you need to understand when it comes to God's word. It is tenaciously and conspicuously indestructible. Worthless priests can hide it, Pagan emperors can burn it. Rationalistic skeptics can dispute it. Textual critics can cut at it with their scalpel. Reprobates and sinners can ignore it, but it's all of none effect because it stands written, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And remember also how our Lord Jesus Christ said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So as we read here of how Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law, do not read it in the sense that the word had actually been lost. It was right there all along because that is one of the perfections and properties of Scripture. We call it integrity, the integrity of Scripture, and it can be defined as follows, adapted from von Maastricht. Because of the singular providence of God, Scripture exists free from all corruption. 
And thus, neither the whole nor any of its books will ever cease to exist. Scripture cannot be lost to man. But as we see here, men can lose sight of it. That's what happened in the days of Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh. That's what happened in the days of his father, Ammon. They did what was right in their own eyes. And that is never a safe standard for any kind of judgment. And Josiah knew it. He knew he needed something more. He needed a divine and infallible and authoritative standard. And that's exactly what he found when God's word was rediscovered in the house of the Lord. They found it, they read it, and they made a covenant to obey it, purging from all the land anything and everything that was contrary to the word of God. It's called Reformation. This is the standard by which all things are to be judged, Holy Scripture. It was, it is, it ever shall remain the supreme and final judge of all controversies of religion. And to speak more practically, that's why we're here today. Even thousands of years after what we just read about, we're here today still worshiping and serving the one true God, Jehovah, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Wicked men have arisen in every generation to destroy God's church, to destroy the true religion. Their tactics, their methods are always the same, either undermine or deny outright the word of God, the authority of Scripture. But again, the good news, God is faithful. God is faithful to shine the light of his truth even into the darkest situations that his people might know his will and obey his will. That is the fruit of Reformation, obedience to God. Back to the text, and while it did not happen overnight, Josiah's Reformation changed everything. Verse 33, he took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertained to the children of Israel and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord their God. Behold, the good fruits of biblical Reformation they can be examined, they can be appreciated negatively, positively, ecclesiastically, even socially. Negatively, see how all the abominations were taken away. All the idolatry, all the witchery, all the corrupt priests, all the things that had provoked the Lord to such anger, gone. All of it purged. Positively. God's house is repaired. The people are now learning what God teaches through his holy word. And everyone's of a mind to obey him. And they commit to serving him. Ecclesiastically, this newfound desire to know God and to obey God was not some kind of me and Jesus up on the mountain alone kind of thing. The people came together and they covenanted together to obey the Lord as a church. And of course, it was voluntary. They happily complied. But it was also more than that. See how verse 32 says, Josiah caused all that were present to stand to it. He enforced this covenant. And I suppose then we might be able to call him a magisterial reformer. 
That, after all, is how the good fruits of Reformation end up affecting more than just the church, considered socially. Everyone in the land benefited from these reforms, and historically speaking, that's how Reformation works. No more children sacrificed to Molech. No more sodomites living by the temple. A new era had begun. And again, it was all due to the rediscovery of the authority of God's word. That's the Great Reformation of the 7th century B.C. Now let me suggest a few parallels with a later Reformation. The Reformation in the 16th century A.D. Just as it was in the days of Josiah, if you had taken a good, honest look at the church in the 14th, 15th, 16th century, it would not have looked much like the church. Hence, we consider again the need for reformation. There were plenty of churches. There were plenty of priests in medieval Europe. There were even plenty of copies of God's word. But there was very little light. That's why some scholars refer to it as the Dark Ages. The churches were corrupt. The priests were useless. The people were given over to idolatry and superstition. And as for the light of God's word, it had been effectively buried under a bushel of the doctrines and commandments of men. Things like bowing to statues and praying to the dead and venerating relics and paying indulgences to lessen your time in purgatory, simony, which essentially means buying your ordination, But perhaps the worst corruption of all was the so-called sacrifice of the Roman mass, wherein a Roman priest would essentially call Christ down out of heaven to be re-sacrificed on an earthly altar. It was a gross denial of the once-for-all sacrifice that Christ made on the cross and also a cursed idolatry. And listen, these were not just in-house debates where people can have legitimate differences of opinion. No, the false teachings of the papacy so obscured the gospel of Christ that millions went to Mass every single week and never heard the gospel. The Mass was not even recited, after all, in the language of the people. Something had to change, and everything would change. But as we previously saw or I previously suggested, godly change always begins in the heart. A few examples then of men who understood what I called the heart of Reformation. It is again that tender and humble heart that seeks God and finds God and then fears God more than anything else in this world. Examples, John Huss, he was a priest And as such, he personally observed the emptiness of popery, the superstitions of the church. He began pointing out the differences between what the church taught and what the Bible said. And for this, he was excommunicated, exiled, imprisoned, and burned at the stake. John Wycliffe, another priest who saw the same corruptions, He not only denounced them from scripture, but he also dared to try something new, translating the Bible into English so that people could read it for themselves. For this, he was condemned 
formally as a heretic. His writings were burned. His body was exhumed so that it's, his remains could also be burned. And then his ashes, for good measure, were drowned in a river. Martin Luther, another man who sought the Lord and found him and then spent the rest of his life trying to reform the church and to put the Bible into the hands of men. As a result, he was excommunicated. I could name more examples, but again, it's the heart of Reformation. Fearing God more than any man and believing God's word more than anything else. And again, practically speaking, that's why we're here today. If you were a Lutheran or Reformed or Anglican or Presbyterian or any of the other groups, many groups that branched out from these, this is your heritage. And it is good and right that we remember it. But it's also good and right that as we look at these men, we do not worship them. But we do seek to learn from their good example that we might emulate them by God's grace as we continue to stand upon the authority, the supreme authority of Holy Scripture. Again, that is the standard of Reformation. And here I would share a helpful distinction, logical distinction. The historians will speak often of different causes for the Protestant Reformation the material cause related to all those corruptions previously mentioned, those things that needed to be addressed. And with Rome, it was not just idolatry and superstition, but deeper questions. Like, how is a man justified before God? And this is where the formal cause or the formal principle of Reformation provides the answer, namely the authority of Scripture. As those material causes were debated, there was no agreement between the papists and the Protestants, and the reason is because they had two final authorities that were different. For the Romanists, it was the teaching magisterium of their church, and for the Protestants, of course, it was the Holy Bible, and that difference still stands today. It is, in fact, what makes us reformed, and here we can just say, yes, we're happy to read what the church fathers had to say. We're happy to consider what the ancient councils debated and decided, but in the end of the day, there is but one supreme and final authority by which all matters are to be judged, and that is the Word of God, the Holy Bible. For believing this, we are often mocked as biblicists or fundamentalists, but listen, standing upon the authority of Scripture brings nothing but good, nothing but God's glory, nothing but the good of his people. And we consider, therefore, again, the fruit of Reformation. The fruit of Reformation. As the aforementioned men embraced God's word and believed God's word and applied God's word and bowed before the authority of Scripture, everything changed for the better. The true church was set free from captivity. The true gospel was preached throughout all Europe. Salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Countless souls were saved. The purity of God's worship was restored. Western civilization was birthed, and an era of global 
gospel missions began to dawn. I would, in fact, argue that everything that is still good about our culture can, in some way, be traced back to the Protestant Reformation. But sadly, it's all disappearing. Slowly, but surely, as Western civilization continues to slip back into a new dark age, right before our very eyes. A few closing comments then on Reformation in the 21st century. When it comes to the need for Reformation in our own day, the need could not possibly be greater. But here, we can also stop and notice a stark contrast. Back in Josiah's day, there was apparently only one copy of the Word of God available to them. During the medieval era, there were more copies of God's word than that, but they were extremely expensive to print and therefore extremely rare. And today, we have more Bibles than we know what to do with. But you know what we don't have? Tender and humble hearts that are quick to bow before its supreme authority. And it's no longer just the pagans, another contrast. It's no longer just the pagans and the popes who deny scriptural authority. Now it's the intellectual and evangelical elites. A little history. It all started back in the 18th century with rationalism, where human reason was elevated and essentially deified so that man could now sit as judge over scripture. Anything that couldn't be explained by intellect or evidence was now questioned. So much so that by the mid-19th century, most of the elites concluded that the gospel accounts were myths. And they therefore embarked on an intellectual quest to discover the historical Jesus. We call this higher criticism, and it's essentially an attempt to get behind the text of Scripture to discover the original intent of the authors. This ill-advised quest is always connected to another, and it's called lower criticism. It's an attempt to discover the original form of the text of Scripture, and originally these scholarly disciplines were of interest only to a few only in academia. But now, democracy rules the day, does it not? Today, you can decide for yourself which verses of the Bible are inspired, apparently. You, who don't know the difference between a majuscule and a minuscule, can now decide for yourself which verses are inspired and applicable and authoritative, and this affects both text and translation. As for the text itself, the footnotes in your modern versions essentially leave it up to you, the reader, to decide whether the apostle said this or that. Sometimes, and as it is with the ending of Mark's gospel, you even get three choices. Rationalism. Skepticism, individualism at its worst. 
And as for translation, thinking back to the text, mean words like sodomites, they're just removed or retranslated. They used to have houses by the temple of the Lord, and today they actually stand in the pulpit. The entire last century has been nothing but a downgrade when it comes to scriptural authority, and it's only going to get worse. That is, unless someone stands up and calls the people of God to stop and to seek the Lord, which brings us right back to the heart of Reformation. Tender and humble hearts are rare today, but manipulated hearts are not rare at all. The consumer spirit has possessed the land. A new niche version is printed for every imaginable subset of the market. And if you don't like what you read today, you can always buy a new version tomorrow. How different is this? How different is this than what we saw in Josiah and the later reformers? Where is the man today who will stand up, seeing the sad condition of the church and our land, stand up and call upon people to seek the Lord? Where is the man who will actually grieve over the condition of our church and state and rend his garments and weep and seek the God of his fathers? Where is the man who will stand up and say, Enough! Can you not see that the curses of this book are falling upon us because of unbelief? We need a new generation of men who are tender-hearted to seek the Lord and who are also brave-hearted to face the foe. Hence, this conference, we are calling upon this generation to rediscover the standard of Reformation. It is again the word of God, but sadly, because of a century's worth of spiritual downgrade, we can't just say that anymore and assume that people know what that means. People are confused. What is the word of God? The neo-Orthodox speak of it as some kind of ethereal truth that kind of hovers over the page. It's not the text of scripture, but the truth of it that can only be accessed or encountered through some kind of personal crisis of faith. Bardianism is what we call that. More conservative men will thankfully admit, no, it is the text of scripture, but then they take away with one hand what they just offered with the other hand and offer a qualification. And by immediately inspired scripture, we mean the original documents. They don't exist. They will never be found. So what is your authority, Mr. Conservative? What is your authority, your final authority? That question, again, is the formal principle of Reformation. And until it is answered, we will never even begin to be able to address all the material causes that are so obvious to us, especially in our day. I mean, what is a woman? What is a man? What is marriage? What is a family? What is church? What is a nation? And how do all these interrelate? You know, the answer is found right here in the word of God. 
And that's why scriptural authority remains the formal cause and principle of all we seek to do. But here's the problem, stated very simply. You think about all those issues and all the things that need to be addressed. How are we supposed to, as Christians, how are we supposed to come to any agreement over what the Bible says about any of those things if we can't even agree on what the Bible is? We need a standard. And for those who scruple over words like pure and perfect, can we at least agree on a standard? We used to have one, you know. It is what the Reformation left us, a standard. I mean, questions over canon are not new, and our knowledge of textual variance is not new. But God, through a special season of Reformation, gave his church a standard, namely the received text and our common version. And yes, you're free to deny that it was the correct standard, but you cannot deny that it was indeed the unchallenged standard in four centuries and on four continents. And until another standard is set, again, through a special providential season of Reformation, like we've been considering tonight, it is not good and it is not safe to reject that which we have received. Therefore, I call upon this generation, again, to rediscover that standard And I believe that it will. And if not this generation, probably the next. Because listen, I think the modern Bible version fad is probably going to fade away soon enough. Probably not in actuality. The marketers need to make their money. But in terms of general appeal, I think most people have already lost interest. This is one of the few benefits of living in an overly commercialized society. People eventually start seeing right through it. The fake and plastic appeals that bombard them day by day, they see right through it. And it's happening right now. An entire generation is set on a quest for something old, something ancient, something authentic, something with roots. And they look around, and and what do they see? They see that the mainline churches have nothing to offer. The megachurches have nothing to offer. So many are making a mistake, a soul-damning mistake of going back to Rome or back to Greek orthodoxy. Many who call themselves conservatives are even going back to old-world paganism. And that's why we need to do better. We need to call this generation back to the God of Josiah. We need to call this generation back to the supreme authority of the Word of God. We need to call this generation back to that faith of our fathers which survived the emperors and evangelized the pagans and defied the popes and baptized the nations. All through this, the word of God. God says, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. So I ask, do you believe that, Christian? I do. And that's why I look forward in faith to seeing once again the fruit of Reformation. 
If this generation will but rediscover the truth of Scripture and bow before its awesome authority and embrace its doctrine and obey its commandments, everything will change. Hearts will change, becoming humble and tender like that of Josiah. Homes will change so that every generation doesn't have to essentially start over as Josiah had to do. Churches also will change, becoming reformed in doctrine and in practice, and also recovering that prophetic and public voice which once turned the world upside down. Society, too, will change. We've seen it in every historical instance of Reformation in the past. We've seen it, and therefore we can expect to see it again. Perceived objection to close. Ah, pastor, you hope for too much. No, I don't. It's happened before, and it will happen again if God is so pleased to send once more one of those special seasons of church history that we call Reformation. Amen.